in your Bible this morning. We are going to be at the end of Mark chapter 14. We're continuing our journey through the Gospel of Mark. So we're going to start right around verse 43. I want to pray for us. So as you're kind of navigating your Bible, as you're finding your place in your phone, Mark chapter 14, right around verse 43. Let me pray for us, and and we're going to get started this morning. Father, thank you for the gift of music. God, thank you for the way you use music to encourage us and teach us. God, it's a way that we lift our hearts and our voices to you. God, thank you for the ministry that happens on Sunday mornings with our preschoolers, with our kids, our teenagers. God, as adults gather to encourage one another, the the worship that happens just through conversation before and after the service. God, thank you for those things. And God, I pray that you would use the Bible this morning to remind us of how you work in our lives. So God, thank you for the gift of Scripture. Open our hearts, open our minds to the good news of Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So a couple of weeks ago, uh, spring break, there was a group of people from Emmaus who went snow skiing uh, out in Colorado. We went to Wolf Creek, so southwest corner of Colorado down there. My family, we grew up going to Wolf Creek, uh, stayed on the Pagosa side sometimes, stayed on the South Fork side sometimes. We went in the summer, we went in the winter. I just love that mountain, love going snow skiing out there. And so Jaron and I, we took our sons. We left early because my family, my parents and brothers, they had gotten out there the weekend before to snow ski. And so I was able to see my mom and dad and see my brothers. We, the five of us, my two brothers and my mom and dad, we haven't snow skied together since I was a senior in high school. So the spring of 2000 was the last time we had skied together. So we recreated a picture from 23 years ago, which was a lot of fun. So it was fun to see them, ski with them. And then the next day, they left, but the rest of the Emmaus crew came in to ski. So that afternoon, we got together with a big group of Emmaus people, and we were going to go ski some, and Wolf Creek has opened up kind of a new area on the west, left side of the mountain, so we were going to go over there skiing. We had a fair-sized group together, different skiing abilities, some people skied a lot, some were just learning, so we were going over there, and I knew one way to get down the mountain, and it had a little bit of a steep area to, to get down. I was like, I don't want to take people starting out on this part, like I, I don't want to put them in a bad spot, so we're going to go this other area. Now, now, mind you, I'd never actually been down this other area of the mountain, but I knew it was a blue. It had a really easy blue to get there, so I was like, what could go wrong? Just, so I went down, and I was leading. I was like, hey, follow me. You know where you put your pole up in the air? Hey, follow me. Narrator, they should not have followed him. Like, they should not have followed him. Uh, we get to this area going down, it's steep, it's narrow, it has these huge moguls and humps. Needless to say, I went to the ski patrol office after this, and I put in a little complaint form about this should not be a blue. Like, there should be a major warning sign, don't go, don't go this direction. It took us a long time to get down that hill. Okay, this was, this was a bad, bad situation that we got ourselves into we made it down. We, we made it back. We're here today. We, we made it back, barely. When you ask someone to follow you and you get them into a bad situation, 
it just puts a pit in your stomach. Because when you're the guy waving your poles like, hey, everybody, follow me, and then they follow you, and you put them in a bad situation, ah, it just makes you sick in that situation. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, what did Paul say? Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Is that not a terrifying thought? To think about what would it look like for someone to follow you. There's no way those are going to stay right there. We're going to put those on the piano. What does it mean if someone was following you spiritually, where would you be leading them? Parents, if your kids, if you say to your kids, hey kids, follow me as I follow Christ, man, I want to be following Christ because if my kids are following me, I want to know I'm pointing them in the right direction toward Christ. If your friends know that you're a Christian, if your friends know that you're a Christian and you say to your friends, hey, follow me, follow the way I live, follow the direction I'm going, where would you be taking them? What does it look like to say, follow me as I follow Christ? Now, I want us to take that idea and I want us to apply it to Peter at the end of Mark chapter 14. Because you're going to look at Peter's life here at the end of Mark chapter 14, and you're going to say, don't follow that guy. Like, you don't want to go after him. But I do think there's something we can learn from Peter's life that's so helpful about our spiritual life. So the first half of the sermon today, I want you to be clear about this. The first half of the sermon today is follow Jesus. Like, let's get that part right. If we follow Christ, if we follow Jesus, we're going to be going the right direction. The second half of the sermon is what can we learn from Peter's life, from Peter's failure about what it means to point other people toward Jesus? So we're going to do this in two parts. Let's start in Mark chapter 14, verse 43. See what's going on here. Mark chapter 14, verse 43. And immediately, that's like Mark's gospel favorite phrase, and immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now I want you to know up front, many of you have been around church, you know this story, you know what happens to Judas. Mark doesn't spend very much time on Judas. I don't know why, it's just not a key part of the story. So you're not going to hear much about Judas in this story. You can read the other Gospels, you can read the book of Acts, you can find other places, but, but Mark's not going to do very much with Judas here. But I do want you to see, from the beginning of this story, the thread of violence that goes through the story. How people are acting violently toward Jesus. How this mob crowd is coming out toward Jesus in this situation. So watch for this thread of violence. Verse 44. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man, the one we're going after. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him, Judas did, and said, Rabbi. And Judas kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Here's violence again happening in in the story. Now we don't find out in the gospel right here, but we learn in other places that this is Peter, almost certainly, who is taking this action. Why is Peter's name not mentioned here in Mark's gospel? 
Well, we don't know for sure, but don't forget this. The way Mark got the information for writing his gospel was from Peter. And so Peter may have been saying, like, hey, if there's any way you could leave my name out of that particular part of the story, like, I would really appreciate that. Like, I'm going to give you all this information to write the gospel if you could just not mention my name. Now, let's be clear. Mark doesn't whitewash Peter. Like, Peter struggles. He, he has challenges going through here. But for whatever reason, Mark doesn't mention his name right here. But you see, Peter is responding with violence the same way the mob was responding with violence who was coming out toward Jesus. There's this idea that they just don't get it. They don't understand what Jesus' kingdom is all about. Look at the next verse. It says there in verse 48, Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? That word for robber is the same word that's used to describe the two thieves that are crucified on either side of Jesus on the cross. So there's Jesus in the middle of the two thieves who are crucified next to him. That word that's used there is the word for a revolutionary, someone who's leading a revolt, someone who is a part, maybe a part of this group called the Zealots, who were trying to overthrow the Romans with, with violence and force. And Jesus said, seriously, you're treating me as anything about my ministry pointed in that direction that I'm driven by violence, that, that I'm trying to cause some sort of revolution against the Roman Empire, against the Roman army at this point. Why have you come out to me in this way? What does he say very next thing in verse 49? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching. I wasn't training in the army. I was teaching in the temple, and you didn't seize me there, but let the scriptures be fulfilled and they all left him and fled. When you see that phrasing that says, let the scriptures be fulfilled, what that triggers in our mind is, this situation is completely under God's control. If you were to look at this situation otherwise, you would think, oh man, Jesus is in a bad situation here. This situation is getting out of control. Somebody needs to step in with a sword and cut somebody's ear off. Like somebody needs to do something. And Jesus says, no, this is happening exactly how my father planned. This is happening exactly according to the scriptures, and immediately everyone flees, which is exactly according to the scriptures that Jesus said was going to happen. They were going to strike the shepherd, and the sheep were going to run away. Then, the next verses will get your attention, uh, verses 51 and 52. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth, about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. What do you do with that part of the story? Um, well, there's different, different theories about what's going on here. There's a very famous theory here that this particular young man who's wrapped up in this linen cloth, which would almost have been like a tablecloth, that he was wrapped up in this cloth they come out to get Jesus, and he gets terrified because he doesn't want to be caught up in this situation, and he runs away. There's a strong theory that this is Mark involved here. Because remember, who did Mark not mention the name of, like, cutting the guy's ear off with, you know, with the sword? He didn't mention Peter. Well, Mark's sure not going to mention his own name <laughs> right here. He's like, there just happened to be a young guy there that was wrapped up in a cloth, and he got scared and ran away. I'm not saying it was me, but it could have been me. Um, 
it, there's a good chance it was Mark. We don't know that for sure. There's no way we can know that for sure, but that's one of the strongest theories here. The point of the passage, whether it was Mark or somebody else, the point of the passage is there is so much shame involved in being seen with Jesus that even running away naked is better than being seen with Jesus. That's the point. The key word for these verses is the word shame, S-H-A-M-E. The idea, I'm ashamed to be with Jesus, I would rather run away unclothed the other direction. Next verse, verse 53. So they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the scribes, and the elders and the scribes came together. Where's Peter in this situation? Well, verse 54, Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. You know that friend who says, don't worry, I've got your back? way back there <laughs> like that. that's a little bit of what peter's doing here he's abandoned jesus he's drawn away from him but he's still close enough to see what's going on so he's like jesus i've got your back way back there i'm not going to be involved in what's going on but i'm curious i want to see what's happening there verse 55 now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking testimony against jesus to put him to death but they found none for many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. There's no way they're going to stand up on cross-examination here. Like, they're, they're trying to make up these things about Jesus, but they can't come up with anything that's going to stick. And some stood up in verse 57 and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. Have you ever had the experience of saying something, and then you heard someone report what you said, and you're like, whoa, time out. That's not what I said. That's not what I said, and that's definitely not what I meant. I mean, that's what Jesus is going through right here. He's been teaching that the temple is going to be destroyed, and he even says you're going to be involved in destroying the temple, and then in three days, I'm going to raise it up. All of that is true, but they've completely twisted. They've completely misunderstood what Jesus means by the temple being destroyed and being raised in three days. And they're trying to use it against him because this is all they can get to stick. But even that won't stick because they can't get their testimony to agree. They're trying to lie, and the more they lie, the more their lies begin to contradict one another. Verse 59. Verse, I'm sorry, verse 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Here's Jesus. He's being lied about. His words are being twisted. His friends have abandoned him. And what does he do? He just comes in peace. He just stands silently there. Have you ever been in a situation where you were being attacked and you were being manipulated and you were being lied about and people had abandoned you and everything in you wanted to stand up and defend yourself and clear your name and defend your rights? And God says, no, no, trust me with this. Just be quiet. 
Just let me handle this situation for you. Here's the fascinating thing about this. Remember, Peter, in the background, he's denied Jesus, but he's watching some of these things take place. Peter will write a letter later in the New Testament. 1 Peter. Look at these verses from 1 Peter. Think about Peter experiencing the story in Mark chapter 14, and then think about years later, Peter is writing about this story. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 and 22. Peter tells the believers, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. So we're going to live the way Christ lived. We're going to suffer the way Christ suffered, that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, but no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats in return. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Oh my word. <laughs> you talk about a hard verse to live out in life. What does it look like for people to hurl insults at you and you not to retaliate? For you to suffer at the hands of somebody else but to not make threats in return? For you to entrust your life, your reputation, your name, your future, to whom? To the God who is in control of all things. To the one who judges hearts. To the ones who will ultimately judge all people perfectly. To say, God, I can't fix this situation. I can't control what other people say about me. I can't control what other people do, but I can trust you. And so instead of insulting somebody in return, instead of retaliating, instead of trying to get back at someone, I'm just going to be quiet, I'm just going to have peace, and I'm just going to trust you in this situation. And then look at the next verse in 1 Peter, verse 24. What comes of Jesus' example? What does he do for us? He himself, 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. For by his wounds you have been healed. That verse right there from 1 Peter, it leads us right back into Mark. So go back to Mark chapter 14, because it forces us to think about, yes, the cross is an example for how we should live, but the cross is doing way more than that. Verse, verse 60, uh, right there in the, in the middle, uh, where the high priest says, have you no answer to make? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, middle of 61, he asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? This is the question that's been in Mark's gospel all along. Who is Jesus? What has he come to do? Is he the one who has come to bring God's plans to fulfillment? Then look at Jesus' answer. This is the one time he does speak. Verse 62, Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. This is the answer we've been looking for all the way through the Gospel of Mark. Jesus, who are you, and what have you come to do? And in Jesus' answer, what does he say? He says, I am. If you've read the Gospel of John in the New Testament, that is a key phrase. This is the name of God being used. I am who I am. Jesus is saying, yes, I am. I am who you say that I am. And on top of that, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. What's Jesus doing there? 
he's drawing two famous passages from the Old Testament, Psalm 110 and Daniel 7, that spoke to God's people about there's a ruler who's going to come. There's one who's going to come and establish the kingdom of God, and his rule will never end. And Jesus says, I am that one. I have come to show you that I have all power in heaven and on earth. I've come to show you that I have power over sin and death. I have come to show you that I am God with you. And friends, when you hear that this morning, give your life to Jesus. Trust him. Follow him. If you're here this morning and you're still uncertain about, do I really want to follow Jesus with my life? Do I trust him with my life? Do I worship him? Is he the one who is my Savior and my Lord? This morning, hear those words. He is the one who has overcome sin and death. He is the one who reigns over all things. He is the one who controls all things by the power of his word. He is the one who is with you, with us, right now. He is the one who has all control of the future. He is the one who is worthy of your life that you would lay down your life and say, I trust you. I follow you. You are my Savior and my Lord. You will never go wrong by devoting your life to Jesus, by following him, by saying, you are the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One. You are the one who reigns over all things, and I trust you. If you have never trusted Jesus with your life, do that today. Make today the day you say, I'm going to stop controlling my life. I'm going to give my life to him. He is worth everything that I have. Follow me as I do what? As I follow Christ. If you're trying to help other people in your life know about Jesus, follow him, the best thing you can do is follow Jesus with everything you have. The more devoted you are to Jesus and following him, the more you'll be able to show other people what it is to follow Jesus. Follow Jesus with everything you have. Now the question is, how do people respond to that? What do people do in this story when they hear that message? Well, let's look. What happens? Verse 63. The high priest definitely doesn't want to follow Jesus at this point. The high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face, and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. What's back? Violence. Violence is back in the story. Jesus has said, I am the one who has come to reign over all things. And the high priest says, no, you can't say that. It's absolutely not true. And they begin to respond in violence toward Jesus. Verse 66, what does Peter do? Well, Peter was below in the courtyard. And one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it in verse 66, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. Verse 69, And the servant girl saw him and began to say to the bystanders, Hey, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Hey, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. 
And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. Ooh. Think about the pain of the situation. Three times denied. Two times the rooster crows. What's the response of Peter? And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And Peter broke down and wept. Here's our opportunity this morning to learn from Peter's failure, but also Peter's response to his failure. Because in this situation, Peter has failed. He has denied Jesus, denied knowing him, denied being with him, denied following him. And Jesus' prophecy comes to fulfillment with the crowing of the rooster. And what does Peter do? He broke down and wept. I want to put a verse in front of you to help you understand this. Teenagers, copy this verse in your phone. Make a screensaver out of it. Screensaver is an old school word. Pretend I didn't say that. Whatever you want to say. Make a, put something on your phone to remind you of this. Adults, whatever works. Adults, make a screensaver. It can bounce through your screen as you go. Super cool. Um, 2 Corinthians 7.10. 2 Corinthians 7.10. Memorize this verse. Hold on to this verse. You cannot go wrong with this verse. This idea that godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. There is godly grief that produces repentance that leads to salvation and life, and there's worldly grief, all it leads to is death. Now we know the difference between these two, right? (laughs) The first, this idea of worldly grief, worldly sorrow, is I'm sorry I got caught. We know how that works. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm not really sorry. Uh, this is the sorry, not sorry type of idea. This is the, I'm, I'm sorry I got caught. This is, I'm sorry, but I had my fingers crossed behind my back. Uh, this is everyone who's dealt with a small child, and you told them, you will say sorry. And they say sorry, and in your little mind, you're just like, yeah, that didn't count. Like, you were not sorry for what you just did there. That's worldly grief. I'm sorry I got caught. What is godly grief? Godly grief is deep brokenness over your own sin and the darkness of the world around you. Godly grief is deep brokenness over your own sin and the darkness of the world around you. In this situation right here, Peter experiences this godly grief. He experiences the brokenness over his sin, his denial of Jesus, and the darkness that's going on around him. Remember, 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 life, your life, is not defined or controlled by your worst mistakes or your darkest seasons. It's so easy to think that the denial that we had and the time we went away from Christ and the struggles that we've had and the darkness that we've lived through, that somehow that defines our life. Your life is not defined by your worst mistakes and your darkest seasons. Your life is defined by what Jesus did at his darkest hour when he was faithful to the cross. And because he was faithful to the cross, his power, his salvation, his grace is at work in our lives. And so what we have to do in our lives is understand what does it mean to experience this godly grief? 
What does it mean to experience brokenness over sin in our lives and darkness in the world? Here's the process. Here's the process of godly grief. It's I have to remember, I have to repent, and I have to refocus. These are just taken straight from 2 Corinthians 7.10. We're not making up new points. We're just, we're trying to say, what does it look like to experience godly grief in your life? I remember, I feel this sense of conviction. The way I'm living my life right now is not right. What I'm doing right now, what I'm experiencing right now, this is not good. I feel convicted. I turn and say I'm going to turn back to the Lord, and then I refocus on what God has for me in my future. Okay, how do you remember? How do you come to that point of brokenness over sin or brokenness over the darkness around you? So often, the way this happens is God sends someone to speak into your life. God sends someone who speaks into your life at just the right moment, and you remember your love for the Lord. You remember the truth of the scripture. You come to the end of your rope and realize, oh yeah, this is not what I'm supposed to be doing with my life. And you say, I remember where I was. I remember God's grace in my life, and I need to get back to that point. Do you know who often is good at speaking into our lives at a time like this? Little kids. <laughs> who spoke into Peter's life? at the beginning of this story. It was this little servant girl that took him down. It was this little servant girl that God used to speak into his life. How often, as adults, you think about a grandparent who has grown cold to the gospel. Maybe you've, you've spoken to them, you've spoken to them about the gospel over and over and over again. They just don't want to hear it. They don't care about church anymore. And then along comes this little grandchild, and they start to ask spiritual questions to grandpa and grandma. Well, now grandpa and grandma are in a bad spot because they've got to determine, are they going to really deal with God's work in their own life, or are they just going to push this little kid off to the side? How often has God put our own children to speak into our hearts, speak into our lives at just the right time? There are times that God will send someone to speak to you. He might use a radio preacher. He might use a random conversation with a friend. He might use a stranger who comes up and they speak to you. And in that moment, you feel this deep conviction over the way I'm living my life right now is not right. I have gone away from the Lord and I remember that I need to come back. Also, God will use pain and difficulty in our lives to get us to this point of godly grief and remind us we need to turn back to him. Those times that we reach deep personal pain because of something that's happened in your life. Maybe you've been living in sin and the, the, the sin just starts to feel so empty after a while. You're like, this is not what I'm supposed to be living for. I need to turn back to the Lord. And that process of turning back to the Lord is, yes, one time at salvation when we turn back and trust him, but there's a sense, don't miss this, there's a sense in which the whole Christian life it's this continual process of turning back to the Lord, turning back to, I remember, I need him, I need to turn back to him. And when we do that, it refocuses us, refocuses us <laughs> on the future, what God has for us in the days to come. And that leads us to the next screen. When you experience godly grief, what does it produce in your life? When, when Peter experienced this godly grief, what did it create for him? Well, 2 Corinthians 7.10 says it creates salvation without regret. And man, that's a great phrase, right? Salvation without regret. That word regret 
when it shows up in 2 Corinthians 7.10, it's very similar to the word for repent itself. So here's what it's saying. Godly grief leads to a repentance that we don't need to repent of. It leads to a repentance that we don't have to feel guilty for because how many people do you know of, or, or let's just be honest, this happens in our own life. We receive forgiveness from someone. We receive restoration from God. Your life was going down a dark path. God gets your attention and you start to go the right direction and what happens? The enemy constantly tempts you to look back in regret and guilt and shame because of what has happened in the last couple of months or the last couple of years or the last couple of decades. What does scripture say here? Godly grief leads to salvation without regret. How great of a gift is that? That you can move forward in life not held back by the regret of your past. To know that's been dealt with in Christ. And God says, I want you to look forward. I want you to look forward to what I have for you. It leads to the reality that Jesus redeems our brokenness. The pain that we go through, the darkness that we go through, Jesus doesn't waste that. He uses it to, it to sharpen us. He uses it to encourage others. Because we know when we experience this godly grief, people begin to connect with our humility. God will use godly grief to chip away at the pride in our lives. <laughs> the suffering we go through, our stupid mistakes that he rescues us from, our times of going away from him when he draws us back to himself, it produces in us a gentleness and a humility and a patience for other people that we wouldn't have otherwise. Because we realize really quickly, man, my life is a mess without Jesus. <laughs> like, I, I know the darkness I can go in. I know my brokenness. And I know how good Jesus has been to me in that moment. So I'm going to be gentle and patient and humble toward others. Craig Rochelle has a great phrase where he says, People admire our strengths, but they connect with our weaknesses. People admire our strengths. We see people who are good at things and we're like, wow, that's, that's incredible that you're so good at that. I can never do that. And then we see somebody struggling with something and we're like, oh yeah, you too? <laughs> I, totally, I totally get that. Like I, I feel that. I feel that humility. I feel that brokenness in my own life. And when God brings godly grief into our lives, it brings humility that allows us to connect with other people in a way we can never do otherwise. This last week, on Tuesday, we have our staff meeting every Tuesday, every other Tuesday, something like that. We were having staff meeting this last week, and we just spent time in staff meeting talking about how God had been at work in our lives. Things we were dealing with, difficulties we were going through, temptations we were battling. And when you do that in a Sunday school class or a small group or with your family or your friends, pretty soon as people start to go around the table, you start to have this feeling of, oh, wow, you too? Like, you're feeling that way, you're going through that as well, and it brings you together in a way that bragging about your strengths never will. But when you realize, man, how broken, how needy we are for the Lord, and it creates in us a desire to serve and a desire for holiness. When you experience godly grief and you turn back to the Lord, there's a sense in your heart that says, I don't want to go back there. I don't want to go back there. 
I've seen that darkness. I've seen the brokenness of sin. I don't want to go back there. I want to serve the Lord, and I want to move forward in holiness. I think about our friends with Hope is Alive Addiction Recovery. And when you reach the very depth of darkness, and you reach the very depth of sin, and watching these guys and girls come out of that addiction and begin to follow Jesus, they have such a desire in their heart to say, I never want to go back to that. It's not fun. It's not cool. It's not, I, I just don't want anything to do with that. I want to serve Jesus, and I want to move forward in holiness. Sometimes coaches will talk about this idea. Uh, you don't have to be a coach to talk about this. But the idea of in life, when you make a mistake, just do the next right thing. Like, how many people in our lives do we know how many times in our own lives have we made a mistake and then we turned around and make another dumb mistake and it makes the first mistake doubly worse and then we make another mistake and then we start to really get ourselves in a hole and the lord comes along and says remember remember my word remember the gospel remember the truth of jesus turn back to me and let's refocus and let's move it forward jaron and i were trying to think this last week what could we sing together at the end of the service today that would remind us of this would remind us of what God is doing in our lives and the word I kept coming back to is God's faithfulness that when we are not faithful he is ultimately faithful that when we deny him with our words when we deny him with our actions when we go through all the darkness and junk of this world when we experience the brokenness of sin he comes in that moment, we experience the tears and the brokenness of godly grief, and he pulls us back and he says, just follow me. Trust me, I am faithful. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, but you would want to know more about that, when we sing this old hymn, come forward. I would love to pray with you. I'd love to tell you more about that. If you think there's no way I'm walking forward in front of a group of people, we understand that. Most people respond to the sermon when the service is complete at Emmaus. We completely understand that. We want you to come during that song. You're welcome to come. We'll pray for you. But when the service is over, come. We'll pray for you. We want to talk to you about what it means to follow Jesus. And let me say very specifically, if you're here this morning and you're at a place of brokenness and grief, you feel like you're at the end of your rope, you feel like, I, I don't know what's going to happen in my life. I feel out of control in life. Godly grief that leads to repentance, that leads to salvation. Turn back to the Lord. Follow him. Let him do that work in your life because he is faithful. Let me pray for us. We're going to sing this hymn together. God, thank you that this story from, from the Bible, from Mark chapter 14, the main point of this story is that Jesus is good and faithful and that we can trust him and follow him and we give our lives to him. At the end of the day, he is the Christ. He is the one who reigns over all. He is the one who's defeated sin and death. He is the reason we are gathered here this morning. He is the reason we have hope for tomorrow. And so, God, I pray that every person in this room would choose to devote their life to Jesus and God, we also know our own lives. <laughs> we know we can be a mess sometimes. We, we get into sin and brokenness and we see the darkness of the world around us. God, in those moments, let us not be prideful. God, break us. Break us to weep over our sin 
Break us to weep over the darkness in the world around us. God, produce godly grief in us that leads to repentance and salvation and a new lease on life. To look with anticipation to what you have in front of us. God, would you do that work in our lives? God, thank you for this old hymn that we're able to sing together that reminds us of your faithfulness. Draw people to respond to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.